0: Hello. Hello, everybody on Education Monsters. Today we have Maggie coming from the States and she's going to talk about her passion today about puppets. Hello, Maggie.
1: Hi. Thank you for having me on. I know it's been so long. Um, Could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Uh, My name is Maggie Flanagan. I am a puppeteer from New Hampshire, which is on the east coast of the United States. I recently graduated from the University of Connecticut, which is also on the East Coast of the United States, uh, (laughs) and I studied puppetry there.
0: That's awesome. So how long did it take you to accomplish your studies?
1: It was a master's degree in puppetry arts, and it took three years. Uh, I just graduated in 2020.
0: Congrats. Wow. Thank you. But also, were you able to work more on your projects, even though we don't have shows and stuff going on?
1: Actually, that that was a pretty big complication. Um, I graduated in May of 2020. So for from March to May, I was actually working entirely out of my apartment in isolation. Uh, My project was specifically in stop motion animation, which is uh, for people who don't know a form of puppetry that is um, filmed and it is taking small puppets and moving them very, very slowly and taking pictures and uh, animating them through these very small movements. So it takes a lot of time and effort. And luckily, I was able to get a lot of that done in my apartment, but it was certainly a challenge to do it without a crew.
0: Yeah. What about the space for this kind of work? Would you say it requires... Um, some room and for people who are confined or don't necessarily have access to a studio for their recordings would that be a huge challenge?
1: Actually uh, depending on how large the puppets are that you're animating um, you can make stop motion on a desktop you can make it on top of a table pretty much all you need is a surface to fix your puppets to And you need uh, space enough so that your camera is far enough away that you can take a good picture, which can be anywhere from a couple of inches away from the subject to a couple of feet, uh, depending on what your focus is and how big your set is. So stop motion puppetry is actually something that's really space malleable. Uh, You're able to make it as big as you want, make it really expansive scene, or you're able to really focus in and work on a very small scale.
0: That's awesome. What was your work? Was it big? Was it small?
1: My work is fairly small. Um, I was working on an original film called uh, Dogwood about a hunting hound and a unicorn. Uh, and my puppets were uh, anywhere between three inches and five inches tall. So they were fairly small. Um, I have seen people animate with smaller, though. So that's certainly not the smallest that you can go.
0: Can you tell us more about the story and how you came up with that creativity?
1: Um, yeah. I originally was working on a project about the, uh, New England cottontail rabbit, uh, but unfortunately, well, fortunately and unfortunately, as I was working on the project, the, uh, New England Cottontail Rabbit was considered endangered and as I was working on the project they got lifted off of the endangered animals list uh, which is great for them but also meant that all of the funding for the project uh, fell through. Oh, no. So, <laughs> so after, think, oh,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah it's like awesome for the rabbits just like a little bit devastating for me but I'm so happy that the rabbits are all right because the whole purpose of the film was to promote understanding of their um, of their habitat needs and I had spent about a year preparing this project and then I had two weeks in which to come up with an entirely new project to do my thesis film on and I have always loved unicorns. Uh, My favorite film growing up was The Last Unicorn by Rankin Bass and I had this idea about a medieval hunting hound and a unicorn that become friends and the struggles of their friendship as the hunting hound's owner finds the unicorn and decides that it is going to be his next quarry. Um, So I'm still actually working on the film. Uh, It hasn't been released yet, unfortunately, due to COVID uh, mucking up my my preparations. We weren't able to finish the film before I graduated, but I hope to finish it within the next two years. And so I won't spoil anything, but hopefully I'll be releasing that independently. And then you can see the story yourself.
0: So you talked about unicorns, but it's not necessarily related to the childhood atmosphere that puppets have like could you comment more on maybe puppets for different age range
1: Would that oh be- absolutely Um, Puppetry is a remarkably diverse art form. Uh, Usually when people think puppets, the first thing they think is Sesame Street or the Muppets. And those are um, hand and rod TV style puppets. Uh, They're performed over your head. They're super easy to relate to and to become emotionally invested in. Um, It's amazing how much expression and emotion you can get through manipulating what's essentially a couple pieces of foam and some fabric. Um, But... Muppets and hand-in-rod TV puppetry is by no means the uh, the be all and end all of puppetry as an art form. Um, puppetry is historically a highly political art form. It's been used in the past to, um, to communicate things that maybe if you said yourself, you'd get in trouble for, but if you could blame the puppet, like there'd be a little bit more leeway. There are a lot of puppet arts currently that are focused on, uh, focused on children and education. Uh, I know that waffles and mochi is a new program that just came out that a bunch of my friends worked on. That one's on Netflix. Uh, They work on educating children about cooking and uh, good eating. And there's a, of course, the Dark Crystal series that just came out uh, a couple of years ago. I think that was 2017. And that's more aimed at like a middle school and up age range. There's some scary stuff in there, some scary visuals, there's some dramatic violence, uh, and some, some darker themes. And then there's puppetry that is aimed at adults. There are a lot of stop motion films that are more adult in nature. There's a recently uh, released uh, House which is on Netflix. It's a film, um, a stop motion film uh, that's a little bit more mature. There are... I've seen it.
0: Oh my god. I just saw it like a few days ago. What did you think of it? I thought it was really amazing because it would not be my first choice, but honestly, I just got a new TV and I'm literally trying to navigate how to use Netflix. And it was just like one of the first suggestions. I'm like, let me just not touch the remote, but I'm just going to try this movie. It looks interesting. And... It was surprisingly good. I liked it for the artist, but I'm not sure I understood. It's not the usual film you would go to the movies for.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, Fortunately, puppetry has sort of made a renaissance in film lately. There's a lot more puppetry in films than people think. Um, a, A recent big movie example is the new Star Wars trilogy, um, in the new Star Wars trilogy, there's a lot of what we call practical effects, which are um, real objects that anchor the acting of, of actors like they're not they're not just interacting with a ball on a stick, they're interacting with a fully fleshed out puppet of an alien or of a droid or um, even of uh, a, a prop. It's um, anything that is physical that you can interact with a lot of. Uh, films for a while just sort of substituted in 3d animation with no physical anchors and there is a return to using these physical anchors and not just using them and then cg'ing over them but using them and just sort of smoothing them or adding a little bit of magic to the world with a 3d animation which it anchors the uh the illusion in something real so like bb8 bb8 is uh, a puppet so a puppet is defined as any inanimate object that is animated through performance. So a lot of things are puppets that people will go, well, that doesn't look like Elmo, so that can't be a puppet. Um, <laughs> but a lot of things that we see in big budget films, uh, if if you're using practical effects, a lot of those things can be considered puppets, uh, including animatronic devices. It's, it's really really lovely to see more uh, puppetry being used in modern film and with so many new stop motion films coming out that is also puppetry Uh, but puppetry spans so many different age range it's really for everyone it's just finding what puppetry resonates with you there's so much that's available for kids but there is more and more that is becoming available for adults
0: would you say there's a trend when it comes to uh, stop motion or maybe including that in movies, like you said, was it like a trend of searching for novelty because now we've seen it all. So it's like going back to the roots because puppet used to be one of the first form of communication, like you said, even before movies, before cinema, or even before airplanes existed, like we did have puppets.
1: I think you're right that there is sort of a return to form where we're we had this long span of time where it's like yeah we're, we're really making huge advances in 3D animation and we've tried it all and we've, we've gotten to such incredible realism that we're turning around and going okay well we can do this in 3D, we can animate this. How can we integrate other forms of art into these big budget films? How can we integrate Real items that can sort of uh, make these effects age better, and I think that that's really where the trend is coming from. Um, it's not necessarily people saying, "Well, we've done all of this; let's return to the basics." It's more like, "Well, we've done all of this, and then we're looking at it in ten years, and it it didn't age very well." Whereas we're looking at um, the works of Ray Harryhausen, who was one of the uh, one of the most famous uh, stop-motion animators of all time, uh, he did a lot of the original like monster animations, um, where you'd see like a uh, a huge monster, uh, obviously superimposed onto a scene with real people. Um, but those things may even age better than some of the effects that weren't anchored in reality. So you see people using puppets to make effects last longer to make them look better as you're looking back at them over time because by anchoring it with something real it's easier to convince you that it is real
0: oh I see but do you mean like if people from 50 years from now let's say our kids or grandkids will look at our film they would be like hmm wasn't so lame just like when we made fun of the star wars (laughs) yeah
1: in the 70s yeah, yeah, when we're like, hmm, that's obviously fake, but it's like, <laughs> um, like, or like when we're looking at 3D animation uh, from 10 years ago, and we're, we thought it was so cutting edge then, and now that we're looking at it, we're like, wow, that didn't age too well. But we look back at um, at some things that had practical effects, and we're like, oh, this actually aged pretty well, given how old it is, because there was something real in the film. But I also think that there has been a real trend towards stop motion in the past 10 years. Um, There have been a lot of stop motion films that have been released that, while they may not have been like huge box office hits, have definitely been enjoyed by a lot of people. Um, And I personally, of course, I'm biased. I work in stop motion. Um, I would love to see that trend continue because uh, I personally enjoy the art form very much. And I think that it's a really unique way to tell unique stories.
0: And as a kid, was that your favorite type of movie?
1: Actually, uh, my favorite kinds of movies have always been animated films. Um, I, I really love cartoons and I really loved, uh, I think that my first true love for stop motion was, a lot of people will say that their favorite is Coraline. Uh, that's a huge one for a lot of people. But my first favorite stop motion feature uh, was actually Corpse Bride uh, the Tim Burton film. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I know that that's not like a super old one, but that was definitely one of the first ones where I went, Oh, I really, really love watching how these real objects that physically exist move in this space. Um, but I've always really loved cartoons. Um, and I think that one of the reasons for, for my love of animation is that you can do so many things in animation and with puppets that are hard or impossible to do. In physical reality, or that would require assistance in physical reality, there's this question that they that they trained us to ask in uh, in grad school, which is why puppets. If you're ever doing something on film or on stage and you want to use a puppet, you have to ask yourself, why does this scene benefit from having a puppet in it? And oftentimes the answer will be because I can't get an actor to physically do this thing, or I can't communicate what I'm trying to communicate with a human actor as effectively as I can with a puppet like doing anything with animals or small children things that are difficult to direct you can put puppets in their place uh like if you've ever heard of the Broadway show War Horse it's entirely about a World War One horse a horse that was in the army in World War One and the struggles that it went through and that its owner went through to find each other uh, during World War I. And you can imagine it would be pretty difficult to direct a horse on stage. <laughs> but if you put a puppet in its place, you're able to convince the audience that this is a living creature. They have, uh, of course, they have to suspend their disbelief, but with stage, it's a lot easier than on film. But you're able to direct. An animal that you otherwise would have a very difficult time directing Um, so answering the question why puppets sometimes it's just because I want to do puppets, but a lot of the times. It's because there are limitations in the performance that I can either lift or make easier to overcome through the use of these performing objects,
0: but could the answer of that question be money just simply because the guy does not have the resources to have like a hologram or have
1: visual effects, so. Absolutely. Um, Although you might be surprised, uh, it is not always (laughs) cheaper to use puppets uh, just because the design and construction and performance of the puppets, that's all its own art form. And you have to, uh, if you want to do it well, you would want to employ people who know how to build puppets, know how to design them and know how to perform them. Um, so you'd want to be working with puppet builders and puppeteers. Uh, but if you are working on a low budget film and you want to put a monster in the woods and you want to just cover someone with foam and fur, like, yeah, that's absolutely a way to, uh, make sure that you don't have to spend a lot of money on, uh, special effects. Uh, but it's not always cheaper (laughs) to use puppets. Um, but it certainly is a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, because for that Broadway show with the horse, they could also put two people together, as in like it reminds me of uh, you know the dragons for Chinese New Year. Because we're yes, that yes, time. absolutely. Oh, one's doing like the front, one's doing the back.
1: Yeah, um, and actually, we did, um, we did a very limited amount of study on on those performances, but those uh also fall under the very broad umbrella of puppetry because they are animating this costume that isn't alive. Mascot costumes are also considered uh, performing objects. There's um, rod puppetry, uh, string puppetry, like marionettes. Uh, There are masks, which a lot of people forget about or, or don't think to include in puppets. There are shadow puppets, rod, string, mask, shadow, and hand puppets like the punch and judy puppets or also they're the traditional chinese puppets that i saw like incredible fighting puppets where you have one performer who has two puppets one on each hand and they're able to perform these absolutely wonderful acrobatic fight scenes Um, but you have these five classical forms of puppetry which includes mask puppetry uh which then would translate over into you have your mascot costumes masks large masks that's technically a form of mask puppet performance so you have all of these various things that fall under the broad uh, umbrella of what what is puppetry. And it's it's surprising to see how many different things can fall in there and what you can do with them if you are determined to use puppets in your, in your performance or in your education or in your film. Uh,
0: did your school impose you to go through all these styles of puppetry? Or uh, were you able to see from the beginning, this is what I want to specialize in. I'm not losing my time. I don't want to explore the other forms.
1: We definitely were encouraged to explore each avenue of puppetry because to find out what we wanted to do, it was good practice to try everything. Even if you didn't want to end up doing it professionally, even if you didn't want to um, really pursue it, Uh, So we spent some time learning how to construct and perform marionettes. We did a lot of rod puppetry. We studied uh, shadow puppetry. Um, I spent a lot of time studying um, mask puppet performance because I personally really like mascots. Um, And then when I was starting to think of what I wanted to do my master's thesis on, I really knew that I wanted to go with stop motion puppetry because it just spoke to me in a way that none of the other forms did
0: what was the least popular form of puppetry in your school
1: Mm, that's hard to say the program was fairly small and we had people in the program who were interested in every single form Um, but i have to say we probably had the least people pursuing marionettes as their final project or as their uh as their focus after graduation. And I think that that might just be because there is not as large of a calling for marionettes today as there, as there has been in the past. And I, I say that, but then there are these famous marionettists who like the, um, the beginning of being John Malkovich, the movie, there's this incredible scene with uh with a marionette in it. So there's a marionette in popular media. Uh, and then you have like more adult media, like a, uh, team America world police, which is, uh, an interesting film, but that's all marionettes as well. So I say that it's, it was the least popular in school, but that by no means means that it's not being used, uh, in entertainment today. It's just, it's a very complicated art form as well. It requires a lot of technical prowess that may take a long time to master. Mm-hmm.
0: When you said your program was small, was that kept on purpose by the school so you guys could get more attention by teachers? Like it was, in a sense, selective? Or was it the lack of demand?
1: Um, The program had limited professors. Uh, We only had two when I started. Uh, This is Professor Bart Rockaburton, and um, he's the head of the program. And then we had uh, Professor John Bell, Dr. John Bell, who ran the Ballard Institute and Museum of Puppetry, which is on uh, the University of Connecticut's campus. It's an incredible institution. If anyone's in Connecticut, I highly recommend visiting it. I work there, so I'm totally biased. We only had two if professors.
0: A, if you get us a discount.
1: Oh, <laughs> oh it it, really. is, it is by donation. <laughs> um, so that's about as discounted as you can get. There were only two professors. Uh, so the class sizes necessarily had to be limited. And also they wanted us to be able to work in groups that were manageable. And they wanted us to be able to get individual attention. But there is also a lack of awareness about programs like the program at UConn. Uh, The program at the University of Connecticut is very unique in that it's the only uh, graduate degree awarding program in the United States in puppetry arts. Uh, But there are other schools that offer undergraduate degrees, including uh, the University of West Virginia. There's not a lot of awareness about these programs. Kids don't graduate from high school knowing, well, I could major in puppetry. Most of the undergraduate students that we had in our program at UConn came in To study theater or came in to study something entirely unrelated and then found out there was a puppetry program at UConn and said, oh, I really want to check this out. That sounds really cool. And then we would sort of rope them in by being like, yeah, it is really cool. And also all of us are really cool. And you get to create these wonderful characters and express yourself creatively through this awesome medium. I would really love to see see more um, awareness of these programs and also to see more modernization in these programs so that they are attracting students who want to do the puppetry work that is happening in entertainment today.
0: So the schools you looked at were mostly in the States, but did you also look uh, on the international scene if they were more popular?
1: I did. uh, I tried to apply to DAMU in Prague for my graduate program. Uh, They have an incredible puppetry arts program there, mostly focused on marionettes. However, as I was applying, the language requirements changed uh, and I am not exactly fluent in Czech. I was learning at the time, but they required a fluency exam that I wasn't able to pass at the time. Um, Unfortunately, I don't know a lot about other international puppetry programs. I myself only found out about the University of Connecticut program after I had graduated from my undergraduate studies in music. So I, I wasn't on the track to being a puppeteer at all. I accidentally found out about the program and found out that a lot of my interests lined up with it and said, okay, this is what I'm doing.
0: How did you find
1: out? I found out, I started working, uh, like I said, I have a big interest in mascot costumes. I started working for a company in Wisconsin making mascot costumes. And me and one of the other my other coworkers started talking about things we like to make. And I said, wow, I'd, you know, I'd really like to learn how to make puppets. And she said, oh, I'd really like to learn how to make puppets too. I heard about this program. And so I started looking into it. And when I left that job in Wisconsin, I applied for a graduate program there. And I was accepted and- had to make the decision like, okay, this is this is what we're going to be doing now. You really like making weird things. I started out as a costumer, mostly working in theater and opera. And then I moved to mascot costumes. So you're starting to add the foam and fur. And then I was like, well, let's just take the person out of it entirely and let's make puppets. <laughs> and then I moved on to, on to puppetry. And from there, I was like, well, I've always really loved of stop motion so let's see if we can get that in the mix too and now I'm working for a major stop motion uh movie company and it's just sort of like a winding route of finding things that you like to do through exploration mm-hmm.
0: I mean in a sense yeah you have moved a bit field but it still stays in a artistic bubble of definitely yourself and making things out of your hands so talking about that because it's always like hand work do you think that It is like a requirement. How do schools make sure that you're not clumsy or that you're not going to destroy stuff or that you're actually like, you know, dexterous?
1: So that's a really interesting question because my style of making things is very detail-oriented and precise, but that is by no means the only way to do things. I had a lot of classmates and a lot of professional colleagues who make incredible puppet uh, art using recycled materials and using techniques that are not meant to last for a very long time, but are meant to have big impact, like big cardboard constructions painted and festooned with all sorts of streamers and feathers and like things that are meant to be seen for a short amount of time but not to last. So sort of an ephemeral art form, which is also very important. Um, the things that I make, I, I'm i on the other side where I'm like, I really want the things that I make to last for a very long time. Um, and I want to make sure that every little detail is correct. But there is, there's a limitation to what I do in that I need to spend a lot of time doing just one thing in order to get it correct. Whereas I have other colleagues who are able to produce massive amounts of wonderful work by focusing on the impact rather than on smaller details. It's a trade-off of what you want to get out of your work and how long you want your work to last and what its purpose is. So it's a lot of like purpose-built puppetry. So in school, we would talk about why are you building this thing, how long does it have to last? And what are its physical, what physical properties does it need to have to do the job that it's going to do? And sometimes the answer was, you're building a wooden marionette that is supposed to last for a really long time and go through a really long set of shows. Like you want this thing to be built very well, and to survive for a long time. So we're going to train you in how to put the joints together. We're going to train you how to string it correctly. We're going to show you how to build a controller that isn't going to break on you. And other times it would be, okay, we're doing a parade. It's gonna be one event, it's gonna be one afternoon. It needs to be big, it needs to be flashy, but it doesn't need to last long. So what are you going to prioritize to build this to the performance? So in that case, it wouldn't make any sense for me to make a one-shot parade puppet be really, really durable and really, really intensely overbuilt, that's not what it's made for. And in the same way, it wouldn't make very much sense for me to make a marionette that I wanted to last for many years out of really flimsy materials or um, with really weak joints. So there are so many different ways to, to create these objects, but the thing that you have to keep in mind is what do I want this object to do and for how long do I need it to do it? And then you sort of prioritize where you're going to put your efforts.
0: If you think about the faith you want to put in your work, so is there a certain ego about making the marionette of the puppet that you want it to last so that maybe I can use it in a museum or something?
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm sure that there are puppeteers out there and artists out there for whom like that's a goal that it's like I want my work to last forever I want I want people to see it in museums and days to come but I kind of feel like because you could
0: also sell it like I'm imagining like some artists when they make stuff it's also for the purpose of making money out of it so once you make the movie if it's a big hit which I'm sure a lot of people would hope for that they don't create something shitty and
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh that's that's entirely true when you think about it that way, it's uh, there's a big difference between making something for a one-day parade and making something for a film franchise. Like in my current work, we are really incredibly detail-oriented because the things that we're making not only demand a lot of high stress, they have a lot of high stress performance requirements because of the kind of animation that we're doing, but we also want them to last for a very long time because we have a large archive of puppets that you know, maybe they want to use puppets in the future for future advertisements, or they would like to have a museum display. Uh, we just recently had a museum display um, at at the Science Museum here in, in Portland. And it's nice if the puppets look really good when you have them on display and they're not cracking and they don't have like urethane foam seeping out from between seams. Seem- I think it's each puppeteer will have a different opinion on how long they want their work to last and what they what they want it built for I think that if the puppet performs well for the task you built it for and then once you're done with it it breaks I think that it served its purpose and that you have a record hopefully you have a record of it hopefully you took pictures hopefully you have a good film or you have a filmed version of a performance. And then it's sad when something that you really care about breaks and isn't usable anymore, but keeping in mind that you built it for this purpose, and then it's destroyed, uh, that as long as it did its job, I think that you can be happy with the work that you did. That said, I personally, outside of my professional work, well, it's still professional work, but I build puppets for other people. uh, And I want those puppets to last as long as humanly possible, because the people who are getting puppets from me, not only are they spending a fair amount of money to get these custom-made characters of their own, I want them to be able to do whatever they want with them, to be able to perform with them for a really long time and have them looking good for many years to come because not only do I want my clients to be happy, I want the work to reflect well on my skills. So I don't want a puppet of mine that I made three years ago out in the world looking Really ratty or broken down because I didn't build it very well. I, w- I want it to look really, really good, but nothing lasts forever. So, talking to clients as well about like, hey, yeah, this puppet is going to be very precious to you, but in about two or three years, these materials start to degrade. Or you may want to consider sending it in to me to have it refurbished because maybe if you're bringing it out in the sun a lot, the dyes in the fabric will start to fade. So in the case of making things commercially for other people or making things uh, that you're going to sell, certainly longevity is is something that you wanna think about. But when I'm making something for myself, oh, I wish that this was a visual format because I actually have a puppet uh, right next to me that I made in school that was only supposed to last for three weeks and it's now five years old. Wow. Um, And it's still performable, but she's looking a little rough. So like, that would be a good example of like, well, I built this only meaning to use it for three weeks and I've been using it for five years, but now it's starting to degrade. So if I want to keep using a puppet that looks like this, I'm going to have to fix it. And it makes me think, oh, I wish that when I had been building it five years ago, I had thought to do all of these things that would have made it last longer. But I think that it definitely outlived its purpose. So
0: (laughs) well, you could definitely send a picture and then I'll put it on the Instagram to promote your episode. But oh, definitely. Yeah, talking about this, how easy to replicate one puppet once you've made it? Because it's supposed to be like a handmade, one-time unique piece of art. That's what makes it special. It's not like a, you know, like a factory where you can just reproduce like dolls after dolls. But when it's handmade, like how, how do you find it, you know, when you want to have the right hue or the right texture? Because once you've mixed the colors, then it's like painting in general. You want to have more than too little
1: so I keep um whenever to to talk to um just let's talk about like fabric dyeing and and getting custom colors when I custom dye a fabric I have a recipe I will I'll experiment first and I'll do dye batches until my client is happy with the dye and then I'll I'll make sure to record exactly what I used in exactly And exactly in what um, proportions so that the next time if I need to replicate it, I can go back to my recipe and say, okay, the last time I did this, I used this dye, this fixative at this temperature for this long, and then I can replicate it fairly, uh, fairly easily by just keeping good notes. And the same thing goes for pattern making. When I make a puppet, normally the puppets that I make for other people are hand and rod Muppet style puppets. Um, the ones that you have over your head and you've got your hand in hand in the mouth and your other hand is working the rods. Um, when I make puppets like that, I will do a bust sculpt and then I will pattern off of the sculpt and I keep that pattern so that if ever I need to replicate a shape or I need to rebuild a puppet entirely, I don't have to start from scratch again. It might mean that... I have, I have a large library now of patterns that I've made of different puppets and it's really useful to keep everything. And this is also a problem that a lot of crafters have where you're like, well, I I do end up hoarding a lot of patterns or I end up hoarding a lot of notes because I don't want to lose any of the, uh, the valuable information that I have just in case I need it again. And that's, especially for puppet builders, a really good habit to just keep your notes and keep your patterns just in case you go, I really liked how that dog's head came out. I wish I had the pattern so that I could build it again. Or I wish I had the pattern so that I could improve it.
0: Are these your personal notes? So is there there such a thing as a software to record this? Just like... Shape, dimension, texture, dye, because in science we do have that. We have the electronic lab notebook so that it's the same pattern. You put like your virus load and you know exactly what to fill in so you don't forget anything. Do you think that would be like a useful thing to have for puppeteers?
1: Oh, absolutely. Some of my notes are digitized, but a lot of my notes are in notebooks. But a lot of that is because I have physical in fabric, we call it swatching. I have small pieces of fabric pasted into these notebooks so that I can say this, this recipe is this color and I have a physical representation there. Um, but I think that digitizing, um, recipes, digitizing patterns. There are definitely puppet makers out there who have who use digital softwares to um, unfold 3D sculpts or they use 3D printing and then they make molds. I have uh, done some 3D printing and mold making. Um, my current job is actually as a mold maker and caster. Uh, so we use a lot of 3D printing at work. Um, But a lot of of this note-taking is digitized for for many, many makers. I tend to be a little bit um, analog myself, but I have been encouraged in the past to use more spreadsheets and to use more more digital note-keeping methods just in case uh, anything were to happen to my physical studio. That way I wouldn't lose all of my notes. So all of you crafters out there or potential crafters do... Do digitize your notes um, Mm -hmm. just in case.
0: So earlier you were talking about 3D printing. Do you think that could be a, a threat to your job? Because machines could do a lot more work and maybe more precise and maybe for cheaper than someone who does it by
1: hand all night. This is a really interesting question. There are a lot of really great applications for 3D printing in puppet making specifically. Uh, but I don't think that that will ever replace the need for skilled craftspeople because when you when you print in 3D, especially right now, it, it all depends on what you're printing in and what you need the thing to do. Um, so say I model a 3D sculpt of a dog's head. Just going to use the dog as an example. I'm still required to model the dog's head. So you still have the artist's input in the 3D modeling. And then I print it um, and I'm using a home. I don't have a 3D printer at home, but uh, let's say I'm using a 3D printer that uses uh, PLA, which is a, a thermoplastic. And it prints out and it's got all of these ridges on it. So then, if I'm going to make a mold of that, I need to then process the 3D print, sand down the ridges, maybe use acetone to smooth it out. And then I need to set it up for molding, make the mold, and then demold it and then cast in it. Uh, Because usually, if depending on what you're printing in, usually you're going to want to make replicas because very often um, home 3D printers uh, will print in materials that are either brittle or they warp under heat because they are printed through heating. Uh, So if you made a puppet head out of PLA and then you left it in a hot car, You don't want your plastic in the head to be deforming, so you'd want to make it out of a sturdier or more heat resistant material or even just a lighter material. Um, So I don't think, I think that 3D printing is, is an incredible asset to artists. I don't think that artists should ever be afraid of integrating new technologies into their work. I think that it's kind of like a boogeyman for artists saying like, oh, well, if there's 3D printers, why will we need sculptors? well, you'll need sculptors because who's going to be making the models to 3D print? And also, why wouldn't you want to integrate this amazing new technology into what you're doing? It can make it so much, I can say it can make it so much easier and faster to prototype things, but at the same time, 3D printers take a lot of maintenance and they take a lot of time to print and they don't always print correctly. So you need to also factor in the time to learn how to use it and be patient with it because you kind of have to baby some of the home machines. But as this technology gets better and better, it's just going to be an incredible asset for artistic communities. And it already has been. I know a lot of puppeteers who will 3D print their eye mechanisms. They'll 3D print like the top half of a skull. They'll 3D print claws or teeth or noses. and I don't think that it takes anything away from the artistic process. I think that it just adds to it. And I really advocate for artists to make friends with engineers, make friends with, uh, with software engineers as well, make friends who can teach you how, or go to a makerspace, or take a course on how to use these technologies and integrate them into your art form because it's only gonna make you a better, more versatile artist. Um, I don't think that these things are threats at all. I think that they're new tools and it's really exciting
0: hmm. That's that's very good mindset. Actually, I like how instead of being in competition, we're just like working together to make something so much better. But was that part of your curriculum in school? Like, did it teach you how to use a machine?
1: Uh, part of it? Yeah, we um, we actually had a liaison on campus uh, who was working in one of the maker spaces Uh, it was in the basement of one of the dorms and we would go over and we would get to use the laser cutter. We would get to use the 3D printers. Um, I really want to see more integration. I think that um, there are a lot of technologies that are being used in the industry today that we could learn more about in these educational settings and it could be better integrated and uh, also It would be a lot nicer if we were able to include the STEM students as well and be able to say like, hey, you know how to use these technologies, but you guys can also be very creative and very innovative people. Why don't we show you what we do and you show us how you use your technology and we can work together on things? And I, I know that there's this big push in education today for STEAM. Uh, science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics. Um, And I think the acronym is pretty cool. But I also, I would love to see that developed and pushed further so that artists and scientists and engineers uh, and mathematicians are able to work together to create um, like scientific visualizations and um, like Let's say you have a biologist who's working on a project and wants to visualize, like, hey, how do birds see light? Why don't we do a puppet show about it? Or hey, why, why don't we do a stop motion thing about this uh, about this scientific concept so that I can communicate it more easily to people who aren't either scientifically literate or don't have the language skills yet to understand my research paper, like translating a complicated concept for kids or translating it for people who don't have a science education. And I think that that's a really unique intersection where puppeteers and craftspeople and scientists and engineers can work together. Um, And I I know that 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 is a huge push right now in education and I'm all for it and I'm really excited about it and I wanna see it go further. But in terms of my education, um, we were just sort of starting to do that integration with our program. And I'm really excited. Once COVID is not as big of a problem, I'm really excited to go back and visit my program and see how much further along they've come with this integration of new technologies.
0: Do you keep in touch with your school?
1: Um, I do, I've kept them up to date on what I'm doing in my career. And I reach out uh, to see if there are students Currently, who are interested in doing the kind of work that I do, so that I can either give them advice or try to hook them up with people who uh, who I know who might be able to give them better advice than I can. Our alumni network for the University of Connecticut, particularly in puppetry, is really valuable because when people are are thinking, well, who do I know who builds puppets? It's kind (laughs) of a niche. uh, It's kind of a niche market, and when you're like, oh well. I went to school here so i'm going to reach back out to my school and see who's there now see who i can bring in on this project that is how i am where i am because i had alumni who said hey i trust this program i know that these kids are getting trained let's bring some people in so i'm definitely keeping in touch because i'm paying it forward i i want to see this uh this community grow stronger and and keep these bonds going so that more people who are interested in doing what i'm doing are able to do it because I'm not going to be able to do it forever. I want everyone to know, everyone who's interested in knowing. I don't, I don't think that there should be like a lot of secrets. I'm very much into the idea of like giving people education if they are interested and not keeping a lot of like, like if I know something or if I figured something out and someone else is struggling with the same thing that I did, I'd be much more interested in helping them learn how to do it because eventually I might need a hand with the thing that I'm doing. And if I'm like, oh, I know how to do this. And I know so-and-so knows how to do this. I'll pull them in. It's a lot easier to build a community that way rather than keeping a lot of secrets.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and talking about promotions, like we're just, I was just wondering what are some communities that we can find on social media? And there's also like um, the National Puppetry Festival in in which you can obviously like network and find people for your next job or whatever. But is that something that you could talk about?
1: Yeah, so I met a lot of people at the uh, National Puppetry Conference, uh, which happens in Connecticut. (laughs) There's a lot of puppetry going on in Connecticut. So there are, this one is entirely digital right now. I'm not certain that they're going to be going back to physical conferences yet. So there is the uh, Puppetry Conference, which is a week or two weeks of puppetry education, where you can work with professionals uh, and work with people who like people who've worked with the Muppets, people who have worked with Sesame Street, people who have been working in film. You can work with these professionals for for two weeks and make a lot of really great contacts. Uh, there's also I can't stress the importance of local puppetry guilds. If you're anywhere near a major city, more than likely that city has a puppetry guild. And you could just look up, like, say, Boston Puppetry Guild. And I'm part of the, or I was part before I moved, of the Boston Area Guild of Puppetry. And you can say, okay, I found this local group. I'm going to email whoever is, is involved. And then you can learn about all of their local performances and local educational events. And guilds are a really great way to get involved on a local level that doesn't feel really overwhelming. Because I know that for a lot of people who just want to dip their toes in, maybe going to a national conference might be a lot or going to a national convention might be a lot. But going to a puppet show in a city near you might be a lot more accessible. And also meeting people who are in your area who are interested in this art form, it might make becoming involved a lot more uh, a lot more accessible as well because you don't have to travel a really long way. I made some really great friends in the Boston Area Guild of Puppetry uh, and I can't thank them enough for getting me involved in the art form. So I highly encourage people who are interested in puppetry, like you don't have to wanna to be a professional. You can just enjoy shows. You don't have to perform. You can perform if you want to. Get involved with your local puppetry guild. Look them up. Hopefully, there's one in a city near you, but look them up and just send them an email. I can guarantee that you're going to find a really great group of people by doing that. Can you tell me where it is in Boston? I used to live there. <laughs> Never seen oh, gosh. So, <laughs> uh, the Puppet Showplace Theater in Boston. Uh, That is where we would meet. And that's actually where we had all of our puppet slams. A puppet slam, so this is mostly for for adults. Puppet slams are like a cabaret of puppet performances put on by local artists. Um, It's people who are like workshopping stuff or have a a funny bit that they want to show. A lot of it is for adults that doesn't necessarily mean that it's explicit in nature or not appropriate for children it just means that this is entertainment that it's not just for kids it's not just going to be fairy tales you're going to come away from it with with something challenging for sure of usually funny sometimes very deeply moving and touching but always interesting so puppet slams if you feel comfortable going to events there are also a lot of online puppet slams but the Boston Area Guild of Puppetry had their puppet slam at the Puppet Showplace Theater in Boston, which is a lovely, lovely theater. Uh, it's right, I can't remember which line it's off of at the, at the moment. I didn't live in Boston, I lived in New Hampshire, but it was like our most local uh, guild was in Boston. But that's an excellent theater. Uh, if you're near Boston, please check them out. They're wonderful. They do a lot of children's programming, but they also do adult programming.
0: Mm-hmm. Is, is it affordable?
1: Oh, definitely. Um, a lot of the shows some of the shows are by donation. A lot of puppet slam tickets are between 5 and $25. I can't I haven't gone to a lot of the children's shows just because I was mostly involved in in puppet slams or involved in the stuff that they did with Yukon, but I don't think that I ever paid over over $25 to attend a show. It's it's very accessible. Uh, and you definitely when you're paying for a puppet show, you are definitely paying directly into the pocket of an artist. It is highly worth it to support local local puppeteers and local artists doing unique and fun work. It's not like trying to go to a concert or buying a, a ticket for a big show. It's usually on the lower end of, of ticket sales.
0: That's really cool. Thank you for the information. Also, do you think that uh, with the US elections, the art scene has changed, like depending on whether we have more Republicans or Democrats, in terms of funding, in terms of awareness, in terms of what people are interested in?
1: I have to say, after the 2016 election, um, a lot more of the puppetry that I started going to grad school for puppetry in 2017. So we were in it then (laughs) um a lot (laughs) oh boy um a lot of the puppeteers that i know um and that that i'm friends with are very on the left side of the spectrum there's a lot of awareness of social issues. Artists in general don't tend to be incredibly rich people. Uh, So a lot of us were pretty acutely aware of people struggling um, or were people struggling ourselves. Yukon itself hosted a lot of artists with more liberal viewpoints, um, which I really appreciated as someone who holds more of those views myself. That isn't to say that there aren't puppeteers on both sides of the aisle. There are certainly puppeteers who are using, using their art form to promote their, their ideas on the right as well. There's a lot of, um, there's also a lot of religious puppetry in the United States. There's a lot of, not something that I participated in myself, but there is a lot of, not gospel puppetry, but uh, a lot of church puppetry. A lot of kids get introduced to puppetry early in church. And churches, of course, are all across the spectrum there are there are a lot of churches that embrace a lot of liberal uh liberal feelings and a lot of conservative feelings they're just saying that there's church puppetry doesn't mean that it's one one side of the aisle or the other puppetry has always been political and will always be political just like any art form it's not the art form itself it's who's using it to express what so there are always going to be artists in every art form who use their art to express their political beliefs and to express what they are experiencing in the world. It's really difficult as an adult who is aware of of what is going on in the world to not have feelings about it. And if you're an artist, a lot of us process our feelings through making art. So there's been a a lot of political puppetry but it's following a long tradition, a long historical tradition of using puppetry for politics. So I don't think that that's new but I think that there are a lot of really great artists getting to say very important things through puppetry that, that need to be said. So I think that especially in the United States, it's a great place to have these conversations because you can find a lot of like-minded artists or, or people who are going to challenge you on your beliefs um, and challenge you on your, on your opinions through, through your art form.
0: Yeah, like you said at the beginning of the episode, I like how you brought up the fact that there is a distance between the person who's saying it and the inanimate object that becomes animate so all of a sudden it becomes less attacking because people tend to take stuff pretty personal I don't know why this generation has to be all about me all about you and all about our differences and divisions but if you put something in between then the communication can flow better or if you use like creative imagination fantasy I think this is like the primary mode of communication for children to be like yo be careful don't go into the woods so this might happen because they might have a different mindset and I think it's also a great communication platform for people who just can't follow the news they're just not interested like they can also get informed or maybe form certain opinions by watching something that's more on a fantasy level.
1: Yeah, it's amazing how much easier it is for some people to connect to an inanimate object than it is for them to connect to another human being saying something to them. It it can bring barriers down. And they're like, oh, Elmo and Elmo's dad are talking to me about the Black Lives Matters protests, this is very accessible not only to children, but to adults who might otherwise be like, oh, I don't care. Or, oh, I don't want to listen or, or oh, I don't want to think about politics. If if you're presenting information through characters that are very accessible to people, people are more likely to listen. And I think that that is a really powerful use of puppetry. But also, yeah, with this, with this separation, it's a lot easier to also make protest art if you are using this proxy for yourself, you can kind of take yourself out of it and project your ideas through this object that can at times deflect more uh, intense criticism away from you. And also because sometimes people might feel silly getting really mad at a puppet. Like if, you're, <laughs> if your puppet is saying something that they otherwise would get really mad at, they can go, why am I so mad at this piece of felt? Why am I so upset? Why am I so upset by this by this puppet cat telling me something? and they might you know even if they don't aren't entirely receptive to your message they might not be as incensed as they could be which which could be a good a good way to start a conversation is to not get people incensed right away but yeah there's puppetry historically has been used for political commentary since since puppets have been a thing so i think that it's just a continuation of a very long very proud tradition of, of puppetry being used for political conversations. Could
0: one possibly think that it might be a coward way of communicating because you're not saying it, but you're indirectly saying? I
1: think, I think that if you wanted to construe it that way, you could. I wouldn't exactly think that performance is a really cowardly way to do anything because regardless of what you're using to perform, you're really putting yourself out there. And you've got to, you've, <laughs> performance, <laughs> performance is never, is never easy and performing especially political content can be very revealing and, and it can be very exposing so I, i'd say that it's a lot less cowardly than saying nothing at all yeah. and I mean, I yeah, was comparing
0: and- that to journalists who are actively like putting their face on camera and be like... Oh, yeah.
1: But I also think that it's not on a sliding scale. Like those are those are totally different jobs. There <laughs> is the bravery of being attached to a story as it's breaking and being a very opinionated person out in the world using your face. And then there is the performative persona that you can use that to communicate political ideas as well. And you may hit a different segment of people depending on how you're communicating your information, like people who might be totally receptive to Listening to a journalist or listening to an opinions columnist might be absolutely not receptive to puppets at all. But then you hit a different audience who might be like, "I'm not going to listen to that liberal jerkwad" or "I'm not going to listen to to this guy talking about this problem." But if they saw something through art that isn't either isn't directly saying these things or is saying them in a slightly more accessible way, it might hit them differently. So there are there are a lot of different ways to get information to people and to to communicate not only information but feelings and opinions. Um, and I think that using art for that. Is incredibly important and can be effective in ways that communicating pure information isn't.
0: Yeah, for sure. I so agree with that. I think it might even be more effective because it can be in the sense it is more effective because it's not like repeating facts. I think it it takes a certain imagination. And I was just wondering if your school also had courses on creative writing because you also have to put that into a context with like a beginning, middle, and end. Versus if you're like being a journalist and saying fact, you don't really have have to structure it like you're just saying it as it comes
1: yeah I think uh we did have um education in creative writing and we also had a lot of overlap with other uh with other departments in this because obviously UConn has a creative writing course as well. And we have like playwriting courses. We were uh, connected to the performing arts department. We were specifically in the dramatic arts department. So a lot of our writing came through script writing, but there's definitely a focus on how do you tell a story? How are you communicating what you're trying to communicate? And is it effective? And that also goes along with the question of why are you using a puppet to communicate this information? Are you doing it so that it's more accessible? Are you doing it so that you can say something really difficult to say, but sort of soften the blow? Are you doing it to harshen the blow? How are you communicating this information? And what are where are you trying to hit your emotional peak? I also think that, like we were talking about before, the, the difference between communicating pure statistics and using art to communicate political ideas. Art, in general, is trying to appeal to emotions, which is not always what we are trying to appeal to with, with statistics or with or with pure facts. We're trying to talk to people's logic. We're trying to say, logically, look at the data. Logically, look at these facts. And for some people, that's incredibly effective. And for other people, it's not going to do anything for them. Whereas hitting them in the heart with like a with a heartfelt, heart-wrenching <laughs> scene, like artistically, might really do it for them in the way that it might not do it for someone who is really, really facts oriented. But yes, it learning how to tell a story and knowing why you're telling a story and what you hope to accomplish with it is really important for any artist. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you add the extra abstraction of puppets, like say you're making a play and you're using human people for your play, you don't have to worry about the abstraction of convincing the audience that your people are alive. They are alive on stage. You don't have to add that extra layer of complexity. And puppets are really good at communicating emotion wordlessly. I think that being able to use puppets to to communicate wordless emotions and wordless ideas is, is a skill that every puppeteer should master because it's really, really a thing that puppets are very excellent at. That is super interesting. And um, maybe
0: going a little bit off topic because I studied neuroscience, humans have such a strong part of the brain that relates to emotion that we do want to put life into inanimate objects, just like children, you know, when they have like a teddy bear. They want to believe that it's something safe, but also comforting. And like the reason why Furbies became super popular, it's because I like, feel like we have the feeling of them responding to us, even though we just it's just like a one-sided communication. They were tests with participants looking at a screen and they were just like triangles and squares and round, round shapes and they're moving around. And then you ask the person, please interpret the story. And they'll be like, oh, the triangle is actually jealous of the round shape because he was hanging out more with the square. We do want to create that pattern of projecting or feelings onto inanimate objects
1: just because so human nature can have that empathy believe it or not we actually discussed that study in puppetry school oh yeah you did. <laughs> we did we did um, <laughs> yeah. because it's like why do people have these emotions about these shapes and how do you use this human response in your performance like how do you use this shorthand that people like this pattern recognition shorthand that people immediately ascribe to inanimate objects how do you use that to your advantage as a performer like how do you do the least and say the most. Uh, And humans are wonderful animals, but um, (laughs) we are so good at finding patterns and things that you could have like literally a ball on a stick and just like droop it a little bit. And people are like, oh, that ball is sad. And it's like, well, it's the ball on a stick. So no, it's, it's not. But you think it is because I just made it go, hmm. Like I just, I just tilted its head like a human would tilt their head if they were sad or disappointed. In that case, it makes our job really easy. But it also means understanding what humans interpret emotions to look like if it's, to, if it's coming from an inanimate object. But I, I think it's interesting that, that we looked at that specifically in puppet school to say, these shapes are not alive. They are not animate. They are just shapes moving around on a screen. Why do we ascribe emotions to them? Why do we feel this way about these shapes?
0: Yeah, there's also an interesting thing that I've learned. I've watched a documentary about puppets a few years ago back in France. And there was this school uh, trying to teach people how to make them feel alive. And everything relates to movement. And even when they were educating people who lost vision, like how to train the vision, it has a lot to do with movement. Like the more you see them move, the more it activates the brain to think it's alive. And that way, you should be aware of this because we used to not use all our brain energy into an animate object because it means it's safe. But if like something's moving, you either have to pay attention um, to whether it's eating you or maybe it's safe.
1: Definitely. There's something that we talk about as puppeteers. It's giving something breath. It doesn't always have to mean like, and uh, and I'm using my arm immediately because no no one's going to be able to see my arm. But like um, when you want a puppet to seem alive, you need to give it, breath which doesn't always mean breathing all the time as the puppet but it means strategically giving it motion so that it seems alive and alert ambient motion like like you're not just still until you decide to make it turn and talk like it's still or it's got a little bit of of bounce to it or it's breathing. You give, it, you give it a sigh. And you can do this with puppets that don't have mouths. You can do it with puppets that don't have bodies. You can do it with your hand, like I was just doing, that nobody can see. It's, it's so difficult because I'm just like, well, I'm a puppeteer. Obviously, I'm going to start gesturing with my hand to show you exactly what I mean, but I have to describe it. Giving something breath and life is so important in order for people to believe that it's alive. There's a, a really wonderful saying that an actor struggles to die on stage where a puppet struggles to live. So you have to give the puppet signs of life that you as a human actor might not even think about. Like, yeah, you're probably going to like move your head a little bit in a scene where you're not talking because you're listening to another actor. Or you're going to like move your arm or sway your hips or tap your foot. You're going to do something that indicates life because standing stock still indicates something else. Like as an actor, if I'm standing entirely still, people are going to think, are we in a time freeze? Are these two people in the front of the stage, the only people like, is everybody else not conscious for this? Um, And you kind of have to think the same way for a puppet that you're performing that if you're in the background of a scene, you don't want to make a lot of like noisy movements that draws attention away from the scene. But you want to stay a little engaged. You want to give it a little bit of life because otherwise it's dead. Um, because if you're not actively giving it life, it's it's an inanimate object. It, it doesn't breathe on its own.
0: Like Would that even work with puppets that you would want to sleep on stage? Absolutely.
1: <laughs> so uh, there was, I was part of a production of The Puppet Master of Ludge, which is a uh, play about a post-World War II concentration camp survivor who has made all of these puppets to cope with his trauma. And there is one scene where there is a puppet laying in the bed and it's supposed to be asleep and he is not performing it and you just see its chest rise and fall a little bit and there's this illusion of life to the puppet because you have that little bit of rise and fall and then its head turns and it's supposed to be like a big audience gasp moment like oh it's alive or oh he's losing his mind but if you want a puppet to go to sleep on stage and you don't want people to think that puppet is dead you want to give it like <laughs> a little like like a little bit of breath or a little bit of motion because when you go to sleep you still, breathe, you still you you don't you don't cease motion entirely um (laughs) (laughs) it it also depends on like what the focus of your scene is because if the focus of the scene is this puppet is falling asleep you don't just want to like put it in the bed and take your hand out of it and then it's like dead on stage you continue acting it just as you would if you were a human performing unless you wanted it to look like it was dead in which case take your hand out of it and that thing is dead as a doornail it is very very easy to make a puppet die on stage you that just stop me of those
0: scenes you know like when the marionette police officer just like hit with the stick like the thief and then there's like a bunch of like fake blood but it's like that blood that looked like fabric and it's like
1: what the hell <laughs> Yeah, streamers coming out, <laughs> dramatic streamer death. Oh gosh, there was a uh, I'm trying to think of what production it was, but I remember seeing a production where uh the puppet is the puppet was a dog and the dog dies on stage and the dog is just dropped on the stage. And there's a moment because you've bought in so thoroughly to the illusion that the dog is alive, you have been convinced through the performance that the dog is alive. There's a moment where you're just like, oh no, <laughs> oh no, this is thoroughly dead in a way that you definitely couldn't get a real dog to do. But it's, it's very, very effective. If you've performed the puppet well, killing it on stage can be an incredibly effective a dramatic move <laughs> of course you don't just want to kill a puppet on stage because it's a good shock factor you want to have like a reason for it but something that is not animate on stage after you have seen it animated after you've bought into its life the entire performance can be incredibly effective
0: okay I have a very last question for you for mm-hmm. this episode talking about communicating in different ways to convey certain ideas might sometimes be difficult for people who are diagnosed with autism, Asperger's, and all this. Um, have, is there any programs or anything about puppets that could help those children or those adults who have issues communicating or have issues with social skills in particular?
1: I personally have not worked with programs that do this, but I know that um, puppetry is actually particularly effective for communicating and working with, with children and, and adults who are autistic. I am not the best person to ask about this just because this isn't an area in which I am an expert, but I know that puppets are used a lot by therapists and are also used by teachers to engage people. And sometimes, especially for people for whom social interactions are difficult, becoming engaged with an object that isn't like looking you directly in the eyes or isn't human, it can be a lot easier for for people who struggle with social interactions to engage with an object than it can be for them to engage with a person. And this can also be a way to like help people transition into communicating with, with people more easily. But I, as I said before, I'm, I'm not an expert in that, but I know that this is a very good use for puppets for both educators and therapists.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Maggie. Do you have a last piece of advice for listeners?
1: Ooh, my last piece of advice for listeners I'm gonna keep it puppet centric. um, (laughs) But if you are interested in learning more about puppetry or you wanna learn how to build puppets or you just really enjoy puppets, I highly suggest getting in touch with a local guild. Um, I also suggest making a puppet. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be permanent. It doesn't have to be anything incredible or it just has to be something, just make something and have fun with it because it doesn't need to be perfect to be great.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. And I hope it's going to inspire a lot of people to either discover or get into something they might not know they will enjoy. And thank you so much for your time on this podcast. I hope to see you soon. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Education Monsters. I hope you liked it. If you'd like to take a French lesson with me, don't hesitate to go on the Education Monsters website to book a class. I'll be super happy to get to know you and we can practice languages together. Don't forget to subscribe to the website and you'll get a notification when a new blog article comes out. Last but not least, please 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 consider making a donation to my Patreon account. This education project means so much to me and I'll greatly appreciate it if I can have your support. Thanks again and I'll see you for the next episode on Thursday.